Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the flood. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock you know I, I think I'm becoming to grow fond of that clicking sound that happens when the screen goes up and down. It's, it's a good, in case you got too comfortable while the lights were down during communion, it jolts you awake before I get up here. The lights come up and I can see that you're resting your eyes. Um, today I want to start with an opinion, and it's opinion that I think should be universally true amongst Christians. Right? It should not matter whether you are male or female or old and young, and it should not matter what denominational influence you may have grown, grown up in, I would hope that I would get a universal yes to this question. And, and the question is, do you want to receive God's blessings? All right, I heard some yeses. I didn't hear any noes. I, I would say yes to that question if you asked me. That does not make me a bad person to say yes to that. I, I know that if you've been here and, and listening to me preach over the last year, I have spent a good amount of time kind of railing against this idea of the, the prosperity gospel. Right? And me saying that I would like to have God's blessings, that is not me all of a sudden doing a, a 180 and, and now subscribing to that unsound doctrine or that unsound understanding of God's word. But it's only common sense. If, if you were to give me an A or B decision, okay, if I'm on the prices right, and Mr. Bob Barker says to me, or for you younger folks, I guess it's Drew Carey, but for me it's Bob Barker. If Bob Barker said to me there are two doors, behind door A are the blessings of God, and behind door B is a mystery. Who knows what you're going to get? I would take door A, wouldn't you? all choose to want to be blessed by the creator of the universe. I found one definition this week for the word blessed, which is the one that we're going to be working with this week. It's up on the screen, of course, if you'd like to take a picture of it, you may find it to be helpful. But it, this definition for blessed, it, it says, refers to those who are and or will be happy, fortunate, or as those who are to be congratulated because of God's response to their behavior or situation. And this is the perfect definition of the word blessed for where we are going to be in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount today. Today we are actually going to be going back to the beginning of the sermon. We're going to be at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. I know we've bounced around the sermon a little bit. Today we get back to the beginning, this section of, of Jesus' sermon that we call the Beatitudes. Beatitude finds its name from the Latin word for blessings. 
And if you've paid attention to your Bible, you know that blessings in Scripture, they, they, they happen quite frequently, and, and they take on many different shapes and forms. It is not uncommon to hear of or see someone getting blessed. A few months ago, when we were studying the book of Hebrews, we, we talked about that reference of Melchizedek blessing Abraham. We, we may have read before about Isaac blessing Jacob. And often in Scripture, we do see as well that, yes, even God himself will bless individuals in response to their behavior or in response to their deeds. Uh, God blessed Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. God did bless Abraham. Uh, Judges 13 tells us that God blessed Samson. Mary, Jesus' mother, we know her as blessed. So, in general, based on what we know, it is not surprising today that Christians would have this desire to be blessed by their Creator. Blessings are good. Blessings are things you should desire. There is nothing wrong with praying to God and saying, God, if it is in your will that you would bless me, do so. We've been given this amazing opportunity to come before our Creator with our prayers and petitions. Why would we not do that? But as I read through the Beatitudes over and over as I prepared for this message, what grabbed me is that many Christians... Many Christians who rightfully so are desiring God's blessings, they're looking for them in all of the wrong places. Because for, for too many Christians, the pursuit of blessing has become the purpose for their relationship. See, blessings are absolutely real. But too often what we find is that men are pursuing blessings so that the shine can be placed squarely upon them. They think that if they have an abundance of money or they have an abundance of things, that that is what is going to serve as, as real evidence that God exists and that he is for them. They, they think that they will shine Jesus the brightest in a dark world if the dark world gets to see how much they have, if they get to see how every whim of their ego has been fulfilled. And I am certainly not saying that God cannot bless you and your family in any way that he desires. God can, can absolutely bless your family with wealth. He can do that. God can absolutely bless you and your family with health. He is more than capable. He can bless you in any way and every way that you can think possible. But the question is, the thing we must consider is that is not the reason for the relationship, is it? Here's the truth. If you want to pursue blessings from God, Jesus has already told us who it is that is going to be blessed and who it is that's going to be blessed in a way that is everlasting. Right? Not in a way that's temporary where the spotlight is being shined on us, but in, in a way that is eternal and will lay a path for those around us towards the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to run through this list with you, and we're going to go verse by verse through it, but, but this is the entire list that Jesus gives of who it is that are going to be blessed. He tells us that the poor in spirit will be blessed, that those who are mourning will be blessed, that the meek will be blessed, those who hunger for righteousness, those who, who have been merciful, those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers, those who are persecuted because of their righteousness. 
and those who might be reviled because of Christ. Right, that's the entire list that Jesus gives us in Matthew 5 of who will be blessed. This is who is going to have a great reward awaiting them in heaven. You talk about countercultural, it does not get much more countercultural than this list that Jesus gives us. If we pray for blessings like a prosperity gospel preacher, see, those prayers are so safe. There is nothing dangerous and there is nothing scary. There is nothing that will stretch you about those prayers. Praying, God, please bring me a raise. God, please, I want a bigger house. God, I need a second jet ski because if one is fun, two is just going to be better. And if I'm honest with you, it's not that there's something wrong with that prayer. Going before the creator of the entire universe and opening your heart and letting him know what your deepest desires are, by itself, that's not a bad thing. But again, there is nothing scary about that prayer. There is nothing that's going to stretch you about that prayer. How many of us, though, have ever been brave enough to pray like this, to say, God, God, would you put me in situations where I can be the peacemaker so that I can be called your son? God, would you present me with situations where I am able to show mercy to the undeserving because I want to be blessed by your mercy as well? God, would you cause me to hunger and to thirst for righteousness because I know that only you will truly satisfy me? How many have ever prayed, God, force me to be meek so that I may inherit the earth? Or, God, if persecution comes for me, I'm going to rejoice and be glad because I am aware of the reward that awaits for me in heaven. See, these type of prayers, these are challenging, scary prayers. And our goal today, as we walk through these Beatitudes, these very well-known and maybe often thought of as very simple, short verses in Matthew chapter 5, our goal is that I hope you will leave here this morning with a very clear understanding of what Jesus is asking of these people who gathered on this hillside to, to hear him speak. To remember that, again, this is where his sermon begins. These are the first words that he says to this crowd of people you know, before he, he leans in and starts teaching about ethics or, or prayer or anxiety or how to shine or fasting. What we read today is his introduction to his message. This would have been the very first words that the vast majority of the audience would have ever heard leave the mouth of Jesus. And again, we try to put ourselves there and we think of the anticipation as we would wait to hear what this, this, this kind of mysterious teacher, this man who we traveled so far to find, what is it that he was going to say to us? Again, that many of those men that came, they made some really big promises to the crowds that would gather and would hear them. Jesus is so different. Once the crowd has settled, when Jesus opens his mouth and he begins to teach, these are the first words that he says to who is gathered there. It's Matthew 5, 3. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
If I was there, I would have been waiting for something a bit more splashier than that. Because any man who is, is bent on gaining power or, or gaining fame or gaining notoriety for himself, you would not start your speech with, blessed are the poor in spirit. He would have said something catchy. He, he would have made a promise. He may have said, hey, you might be poor in spirit now, but if you vote for me, or if you follow me, or if you take up arms for me, your life's going to get so much better, I promise it. But, but Jesus does not begin uh, by speaking to this crowd of strangers by telling them anything that they can do for him. He doesn't start by, by saying anything of, of what he needs from them in order to serve his kingdom. It's his very first words that they indicate to, to all of these who would follow him, for all those that would hear and that would do, they heard that they would be blessed. And, and they would be blessed before any sacrifice or any demand was ever made of them. It reminded me with, with Moses, how he received the law from God on Mount Sinai. He redeemed the people first. He redeemed the people out of Egypt first. He showed his great love for the people who were maybe poor in spirit first. And then he reminds them of the blessing he's provided with, and then he gives them the law. Again, this first group that, that Jesus refers to who would be blessed are the poor in spirit. In, in Luke's gospel, Luke gives a, a more condensed kind of version of these beatitudes. In, in Luke's gospel, he maybe paraphrases a little bit different. In, in Luke 6.20, it says, He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And, and this apparent discrepancy bothered me for a very long time. Because, you see, my feeble brain, when I think about people who are poor, or I think about people who are poor in spirit, I don't necessarily see the same person. If you were to close your eyes right now, and you were trying to picture someone who is poor in spirit, and you tried to picture someone who is just plain old poor, you might see two different people. The reason for that is we have all known people who financially had very little, but were extremely joyful in their spirit. And we've all known people that were, were the opposite, that had a great abundance of wealth, but were honestly pretty miserable people at the end of the day. So it was important to me. I wanted to understand why. Why does Matthew say poor in spirit while Luke simply says poor? Are these two things, are they supposed to be interchangeable? And what it comes down to is this. The, the first thing that I was reminded of is that Matthew writes his gospel to a primarily Jewish audience. And we know that Luke wrote his gospel to a primarily Gentile audience. Luke also, if you are observant, if you read through Luke's gospel, what you are going to see is that Luke had a soft spot. Luke is definitely much more intentional in his writing about social issues. And I'm not saying that Luke was some kind of social justice warrior, so put down your stones. There's no reason to throw them at me today. But if you look at Luke's gospel compared to the other, the other synoptic gospels of Matthew and Mark, you, you can't help but to see that Luke intentionally shines a light that is brighter upon disenfranchised groups like the poor or women 
or the Gentiles, right? These groups who in Jewish society of that day very often might have been overlooked. But the question is still, who is right? And of course, because they're both in Scripture, the correct answer is they both are right. The Greek word that Luke records in his gospel, its definition is being so poor as to be dependent upon others for support. That's pretty poor. You have no opportunity to provide for yourself. You're completely dependent on others to financially support you. When we look at the poor in spirit that Matthew writes of, it's not just how we would think of it as somebody who is maybe miserable or somebody who might be without joy or lacking love in their life. The poor in spirit that Matthew writes of are those that are, are humble in spirit enough to realize that they too have a dependence upon God for the same support. I know this because Matthew uses the same word for poor in his gospel as Luke does in his. Right? Matthew is saying that the poor in spirit are someone who is, who is completely dependent upon another for their support in spirit. The one he refers to are not just dependent on others, they are dependent upon God for their needs. And of course, yes, sometimes the poor in spirit will be those who find themselves in a position where they can clearly see their tangible, real need for God. You've heard me say this before, but there have been times in my life where I have prayed to God that he would humble people the same way that he once humbled me. It's not praying for bad things to happen to people, but I know that very often the only way someone who is so comfortable, who's doing so well, will ever look up to the Father, will ever fall to their knees in prayer and reach out for help as if they are forced to sometimes walk through a valley or two. Because again, the light that we are trying to shine is meant to light where? Is it, is it meant to, to light the path to peace and prosperity upon this earth? Or are we meant to light, uh, shine a light towards the eternal kingdom of heaven? Jesus continues in verse 4. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's one that we have all taken comfort in at one point or another. In times of loss, I'm sure we all have had Revelation uh, 21.4 read to us, where it says, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. But again, Jesus gives us this reminder that it's not that we're going to be spared from mourning, but that we are promised that we will be comforted when we do mourn. Verse 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I think how big your reaction is to this statement, because it's, it's easy to just slip by this one, say, Blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. Wonderful. But I think the size of your reaction to this verse will come down to a simple idea of, of how do you understand the word meek? In fact, some translations don't even use the word meek. Some translators will use the word gentle or humble in place of the NIV or the ESV's meek. 
And the reason that there's no consensus upon what word is, is there is no universally agreed upon good English word to use here in this translation. There isn't one word that properly conveys what the author wants to say because saying someone is humble, it's not quite right. right? We've already addressed this when we talked about someone that was poor in spirit. The, the true meaning of someone who is meek runs much deeper than just simply being humble. Gentle is probably closer, but it's still not all the way there. And if we're honest, meekness in our society, if someone calls you meek, we would usually see that as an insult. We, we picture someone cowering in the corner as a, as a mouse scampers across the room. And that's not certainly what we're called to be either, is it? If we were trying to describe the person who Jesus wanted to describe to us in our, in our own vernacular, what, what Jesus is talking about is someone who is moderate, mild, and lenient. And I understand moderate, again, is a dirty word in our society. I understand everyone has to pick a side on everything. And I understand that mild, again, is a, a word we usually associate for something being without any flavor. And lenient, we're not usually looking to be lenient because someone who is lenient is someone who maybe wants to excuse sin or wants to excuse bad behavior. These can't possibly be the things that Jesus is asking us to be because naturally we all want to stand very tall for what is right. We all want to be flavor, right? We want to be that salty flavor of the earth. But Jesus says, blessed are the meek. If we look at two more of the Beatitudes that Jesus gives us, I think it will help us understand a little bit better what he means by meek. Uh, I want to look at uh, verses 7 and verses 9 here. I think they'll both be on the screen at the same time. It's verse 7 where Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And verse 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And when I take a step back and I start to try to look at this list of who it is that Jesus is describing, and I think of meekness as mild, moderate, and lenient, and I think of merciful. I mean, merciful is someone who is generous, forgiving, and compassionate, someone who's a provider of healing. I think of peacemakers, who, one who strives for harmony, right? somebody who avoids conflict in all areas of life. So what if I told you that the kingdom of God is going to be filled with meek, merciful peacemakers? How would you feel if I told you that the meek, merciful peacemakers are the ones who are going to, to reconcile many sons and daughters back to the Father? It's my opinion that, that these beatitudes are the ones that are the most countercultural for our society today. I think it's the meek and it's, it's the, the merciful and the peacemakers that are desperately missing from American society today. And because we do not have an abundance of these people, they're often very difficult for us to, to recognize. They're also very difficult for us to rally behind. But if this sermon that Jesus is giving so that we can better understand the kingdom of God, if, if Jesus is telling us this so that we will hear his words and have the ability to build upon the rock, if he's telling us all of this so that we will have the opportunity to shine in a dark world, 
why would we be so surprised that it's moderate, mild, lenient, generous, forgiving, compassionate healers who strive for harmony and avoid strife that will inherit the earth, who will receive mercy and be called sons and daughters of God? But that description that I just gave, that's not a description of someone who very often actually gets ahead in our society, is it? Is it usually the moderate, mild, lenient, generous, forgiving, compassionate person who strives to avoid discord, who, who, who rises the fastest in the business world? I hope you're thinking no, even if you're not saying it. How about this? And I'm not going to name any names at all here, so save your emails. If you attach a name to this next sentence, that's between you and God, because I'm not putting any names on this. But who is it that's found the most political success in our nation over the last few decades? Would you describe those individuals, both men and women, would you describe them as being moderate, mild, lenient, generous, forgiving, compassionate, striving for harmony and avoiding conflict? Of course not. You know why? Because we get rid of those losers in the primaries. We don't even let them get to the general elections, do we? Right? And the point I'm making, it's not a political one. The point is that most of these qualities that Jesus is pointing out to us as far as who will be blessed, these are qualities that very often the world around us finds absolutely useless. Or worse, they'll label you as being weak when you exhibit them. I think Christians often today will spend more time trying to twist and turn and justify our way out of these Beatitudes than we do actually taking them to heart and actually trying to live by them. Jesus, of course, he's not telling us to ignore sin. Of course, the culture that we live in today is one in which I see evil gaining ground at an alarming rate, the most alarming rate of my lifetime. Yes, I am scared to death at what awaits for my children and for my grandchildren. Right? Yes, on social media, very often I read things and watch things where I want to get into the comment section and I want to leave a trail of scorched earth when I start reading some of the absolutely despicable things that are happening all around me. But I'm reminded God did not redeem me so that I could win this war. Jesus has already won the war. Right? I was redeemed so that now I could go out and shine. So that those who have ears would hear him through me. So that those who have eyes would see him through me. So one of my favorite things to say, I say to you again today, so we have to go out and live in that tension every single day. That tension to remain meek in a world that is hell-bent on provoking me. I must remain merciful in a world that might show me little mercy. I have to be a peacemaker in a world that very often might call me an enemy. Right? And maybe you, you think that sounds very extreme, but I don't believe Jesus would have thought that it was too extreme based upon his own words. Look what he says in verses 10 and 11. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. There's key words there that we have to pay close attention to. Right, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted, right? But for righteousness. 
Blessed are those who are reviled. Why? Because of Jesus' account. Right? The world absolutely may persecute you. They may hate you. If they hate you because you are following the commands of Jesus Christ, then so be it. Hold tight to the claim that your reward, that your prize is coming in heaven. But if they are persecuting you or if they hate you because you are being prideful, because you're being unforgiving, because you're being a troublemaker, the truth is you're not actually being persecuted then. You're not being persecuted for your faith. You are simply just another pawn that is playing this game that everyone else in the world is playing as well. You're trying to win the game and shine the spotlight on yourself instead of shining the spotlight on the kingdom. There's two last Beatitudes today that I skipped over. First, in Matthew 5, 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And then in verse 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It says you should hunger for the days when God's standards will be established over the entire world, where every man, woman, and child will obey. Hunger for the day when justice will reign over all of the earth and over all men. But we must be pure in heart. We, we must have a single-minded devotion, devotion to God that is evident to all that you are living a life that shows that you have been changed from the inside out. We, we must live a life that displays this type of purity and displays this type of righteousness. And we do these things not because you believe that it's going to earn you the kingdom, but because it may be what causes your neighbor to see the kingdom for the very first time. Verse 12 is very important. It may not be a beatitude, but it, it, it's essential for us to understand in order for us to grasp what Jesus is saying to us here. In verse 12, he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's, it's this verse, it's verse 12 that's the, the crux of all of the beatitudes. Because right from Jesus' mouth, he tells us, absolutely, there are blessings. And again, through this whole section, nine times he has told us who it is that is going to receive this blessing. He says it's the poor in spirit. He says it's those that are mourning. It's those who are meek, those who are hungering for righteousness, those who are merciful. It's the peacemakers. It's the persecuted it's all of these, these identifiable groups of people who can rejoice and be glad because their re reward is going to be found where? In, in their bank account, right? That's what it said. No. Uh, no, it says their reward is going to be in heaven. It's this idea, again, guys, God may bless you while you are here on earth. He can bless you while you are here. And I will pray with you that he does bless you. I will pray that he blesses you and your family with health and wealth and with peace. But we cannot lose sight of the fact that none of those are what is promised here. That it's heaven is what is promised to those who are blessed. And it has to be enough. Romans 6.23, even if you don't have it memorized, as soon as you see it on the screen, you'll know it. It says, for the wages of sin is death. 
but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as I read verse 12 in chapter 5, it's Romans 6.23 that immediately sprung to my brain. You see, in 5.12, it says that we have a reward. And I've done this a lot today, and I usually don't do it three times, but I am going to today because this one just jumped off at me. I usually don't go into the definitions of this Greek word or that Greek word uh, this many times. I know some people roll their eyes at it, but this is, this is amazing to me. How we translate or how we transliterate this word reward. Let's think of it this way. Romans 6 says we receive a wage paid to us. A wage paid to us for our sin is what? Death. Okay. And in Matthew 5, 12, that's where we're told there is a reward. Not a wage, but a reward. But again, reward can't fully convey the, the message that was originally intended here. The, the Greek word Matthew would have wrote, when you, you look at its definition, its definition for reward is a paid outcome for a work or action. Sounds very similar to a definition for the word wage, does it not? And don't squirm in your seats. Don't make this any deeper than it needs to be. Jesus is not telling you that you have to earn heaven like a paycheck. But what he is reminding you here is that you only have that A or B option. Right? Bob Barker is only presenting you with the two doors here. Jesus is saying you are going to receive a wage for this life. The good news is, is that you have the freedom to choose which wage you want to select. You can choose to build upon Jesus' words. And you will have a home that will stand for eternity with a foundation that is built upon the rock. Or you can build upon the sinful world and you will have a home that will be swept away because you have built upon the sand. It's my prayer, church that you will choose wisely and that you will choose to be blessed. Pray with me.